My mother was very familiar with her neighborhood, but one day she stopped at the stop sign and she wasn't even really sure where she was at. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Before the legendary Federal Reserve Chairman Paul Volcker died, our colleague Greg Ipp got a chance to talk with him about his legacy. I'll never forget. His office was in Rockefeller Center. It was dusk. It was close to Christmas, and you could actually see the Rockefeller Christmas tree in the window behind him. I was so intimidated. This guy was a legend. And I go into his office, and he's not a super gregarious person. He doesn't jump up and pump your hand or anything like that. He doesn't do a lot of small talk. He waits for you to talk before he answers. His answers are careful. They're not like fancy, lots of fancy language. And his voice is kind of gruff. It's almost sort of distant. But the thing that I won't forget is how quickly he smiled and laughed. I mean, this was a person that for all the gravitas and all the uh, mystique around him, he was a very human person with a great sense of humor. Paul Volcker was one of the most important figures in economics for the last half century. He died this week at the age of 92. Volcker served under Presidents Carter, Reagan, and even through Obama. He helped steer the country through two of its biggest economic shocks since the Great Depression, often by choosing an unpopular path. Today on the show, how Paul Volcker pushed the U.S. into a recession in order to put the economy back on track and in doing so, cemented his reputation as one of the most fearless economic leaders in American history. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. And I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Friday, December 13th. Paul Volcker was born in New Jersey in 1927. He was obsessed with economics from an early age. There's one anecdote he liked to tell people from when he was heading off to college. It's when he first learned about the harms of inflation. He got his early lessons in the evils of inflation because he at one point went to his parents and said he should get a bigger allowance than his older sisters because inflation had meant that his was worth less. He actually even got his sisters to write letters on his behalf, but the parents refused. As Volcker's interest in economics grew, so did his height. He was a towering figure at six foot seven. He had just graduated high school, I think near the end of World War II, and he tried to enroll in the army, but apparently he was an inch too tall, and he often regretted later on not having served. Instead of going to war, Volcker went to study at Princeton, where he wrote a thesis on interest rates. Then he went to Harvard, then the London School of Economics. And though he wasn't able to serve in the military, he was able to serve his country in other ways. After a couple stints at Chase Bank, Volcker took a job at the Treasury. And there, he had an experience that would shape his approach to economic policy for the rest of his life. So Paul Volcker, long before he became Fed chairman, was a very well-known figure as a uh, top civil servant in Washington. And one of the most important jobs he had was under Secretary of the Treasury in charge of international matters. And he had that job in the early 1970s when Richard Nixon was president. Volcker was at the Treasury during one of the biggest changes to monetary policy since the Second World War. It had to do with the value of the dollar. Under an old system called the Bretton Woods Agreement, 
every dollar had been backed up by an equivalent amount of gold. But by the 1970s, there were questions about whether America's gold reserves could continue to match the amount of cash in circulation. And so the U.S. government decided to scrap it. But Volcker was totally opposed. Volcker had always worshipped stability. Stability in prices, stability in interest rates, stability in exchange rates, stability overall. And going off the gold standard ushered in a period of enormous instability. And I think that he always found that very distressing. And all his life, he wanted to return to that. Even though he found it distressing, Volcker couldn't stand in the way of the decision. And it was his job to implement the end of Bretton Woods. And so he helped bring on that very instability that he feared. The decision to decouple the U.S. dollar from gold led to wild fluctuations in the value of the dollar. And it added to the already chaotic economic conditions in the U.S. in the 1970s. A combination of high inflation and low interest rates had been fueling an economic boom for the last decade. But the trend was starting to have consequences. The cost of living was rising at an incredible rate, and wages weren't keeping up with the increases. Now, what was supposed to happen when it accelerated is that the Federal Reserve would respond with higher interest rates. But at that time, President Lyndon Johnson and then later President Richard Nixon, they didn't want higher interest rates. They were afraid that it would put the economy in recession and hurt their re-election chances. And so they pressured the Fed chairman not to do what was necessary. The Fed is supposed to be independent from political pressures. But in reality, these kinds of pressure campaigns happened from time to time because presidents want the economy to be as strong as possible under their watch. And some Fed chairmen had given in. So you had a combination of these economic factors an encroachment on the independence of the Federal Reserve that allowed high inflation to take root. And can you describe what the economy was like at the time? I think people today where unemployment is low and inflation is low, they simply can't conceive of just how chaotic it felt like in the 1970s. I mean, inflation was high and highly, very volatile. Unemployment was high and very volatile. Governments were constantly doing these ad hoc measures to try and get things under control. Richard Nixon brought in wage and price controls. The time has come for decisive action, action that will break the vicious circle of spiraling prices and costs. I am today ordering a freeze on all prices and wages throughout the United States for a period of 90 days. There's rationing of gasoline in lineups at gasoline stations. Gasoline shortages are spreading across the country. Odd even service, gasoline lines, and closed gas stations are becoming increasingly common. And the news from overseas... When Carter came in, he brought in credit controls. He said, hey, everybody, stop using your credit cards. That's why we have inflation. Suddenly, people started cutting up credit cards and, like, mailing those into the uh, Treasury Department hmm. and so on. It was a period of just extraordinary instability and uncertainty. And so if you're a consumer during this time period, what is your experience like? Your experience as a consumer is that the price of everything can never be relied on to stay the same. You're always wary of prices going up. It seems that the price of gasoline keeps going up. And even when the price isn't going up, you can't get enough of it because there's rationing and lineups at the gas station. Your wages, it's a constant argument and battle with your employer to make sure that your wages are rising as fast as your cost of living. Unions constantly fighting with their employers and going on strike because the two sides couldn't agree on what the appropriate response to inflation was. Things are very bad. It had a crisis feel to it. 
It was in this context that President Jimmy Carter asked Volcker, the man who valued stability over everything, to become chairman of the Federal Reserve in the summer of 1979. At the time, Volcker was the obvious choice. Paul Volcker had, in the 1970s, already been president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, which is the most prominent of the 12 banks that make up the Federal Reserve system. So he was a very public figure. And Volcker had this interesting public persona, understated, soft-spoken, and frugal. He smoked cigars, but not the fancy kind. He'd smoke whatever you could buy at the drugstore. And when he got the job as chairman of the Fed... His home was in New York City, and he moved to Washington. His wife didn't want to come with him, so he got a temporary apartment, which apparently was a quasi-dorm for George Washington University students there. Huh. And his furnishings consisted of a bed, a bridge table, and a 12-inch television. Apparently, he used to uh, go and take his laundry to his daughter, who lived in Virginia, and have her do it. <laughs> and he wanted a more frugal lifestyle for the nation, too, as he told Congress on more than one occasion. Getting the economy on a sustainable growth path uh, goes hand in hand with the necessity for financial stability and a non-inflationary path. He had a reputation for being very critical of inflation. So by the time 1979 rolled around, he was the most obvious figure in the public and on Wall Street if you wanted somebody running the Fed who would really deal with the inflation problem. Volcker knew that to reel in inflation, interest rates would need to go really high. But thanks to all that political pressure, the Fed hadn't let that happen. But Volcker decided he was going to do it. He'd been in office for two months, quietly working on a plan to make it happen. But before he was ready to announce it publicly, something happened that changed his timeline. Volcker years later told me the story about how, in October of 1979, Volcker had to travel to Belgrade, Yugoslavia, for a very important international financial conference. One of the main speakers there was Arthur Burns, who had been the Fed chairman just a couple of years ago. And Burns gives this speech, and that really, it was kind of an apology tour, if you will. Burns was trying to explain why the fact that inflation took off it was because politicians didn't want the Fed to do what was necessary to get inflation down. And Volcker, he was listening to Burns and sitting at the back of the audience and thinking to himself, this just can't be true. Can't be true because Volcker wanted to believe the Fed was independent and not subject to political pressure, that it would always do what was best for the economy and wouldn't shy away from doing the unpopular thing if it was right for the country. Volcker fundamentally believed that the Fed was independent for a reason, to make the very tough decisions no matter what the politicians or public said. And galvanized by that conviction, Volcker left the conference early. He went back to Washington convinced it was the time to act. He called a meeting with the board of the Federal Reserve for a Saturday night, and he told the board that the Pope was visiting Washington the same day, which would help give them cover and avoid drawing attention. So they all gather at the Fed on that Saturday, and they agree with this new policy. And then Volcker calls a press conference. Now, as you can imagine, the press corps of Washington is not used to being summoned to the Fed on a Saturday evening. And I imagine they're also probably <laughs> covering the Pope at that time, possibly? Exactly. The CBS news crew complains that their people are all tied up covering the Pope. How are we supposed to go cover the Fed? And at one point, the head of communications of the Fed says to the producer of CBS, Trust me, people are going to remember this a lot longer than they remember the Pope's visit. Volcker held a press conference that night and announced what he called his war on inflation. And what do people think? 
of this move? Well, I think there was a lot of mystery behind it. Nobody really knew how to understand it. But there were some pretty sharp economists on Wall Street, and they understood immediately what this meant, that interest rates were going to start going up a lot, perhaps to levels that nobody had ever seen before. And that's exactly what happened. Interest rates shot up to 21.5% in 1980. This was the unpopular move that back at the conference, Volcker had realized his predecessors had been too afraid to make. But it was really unpopular. And the wide-ranging effects of this decision would affect the American economy for years to come. My mother was very familiar with her neighborhood, but one day she stopped at the stop sign and she wasn't even really sure where she was at. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Welcome back. By letting interest rates skyrocket, Paul Volcker tipped the economy into a recession by the early 1980s. With money so expensive to borrow, both individuals and businesses stopped investing. Fewer Americans were taking on debt to buy stuff like cars or homes, and companies started laying people off. By the end of 1982, the unemployment rate was nearly 11%. The problem was Volcker's move didn't start working right away. All it was doing was causing pain. It took quite a long time before this new policy began to have an effect. It seems like the early 1980s was really the worst of all possible scenarios. You still had high inflation. Now you also had high interest rates. And now you have high unemployment. Right. And there were a lot of doubts about whether it was working. So first of all, if you had a mortgage suddenly uh, (laughs) made very expensive to borrow, Mm -hmm. if you had a credit card, your interest rate would go up a lot. And then you had these bad recessions. And so a lot of people lost their jobs, and couldn't find another one. President Ronald Reagan even acknowledged this in one of his addresses to the nation. There are 7 million Americans caught up in the personal indignity and human tragedy of unemployment. If they stood in a line allowing three feet for each person, the line would reach from the coast of Maine to California. Volcker went through a period of public anger that I don't think any Fed chairman has ever gone through in history. Farmers would drive their tractors up to the Fed to complain about the fact that their farmland was worthless and that they were going out of business. Builders would send two-by-fours to the Fed saying, this is no use to me any longer, so you take it. Uh, It was a period of extraordinary economic distress. Some of his own fellow policymakers said this has got to stop. We have to ease up on monetary policy and allow interest rates to go down. And how did Volcker feel about the anger that people were feeling toward him? Outwardly, he was very impassive. He said, we have to do this. It's not easy, but we have to do this. Internally, I think he worried about it a lot. He later said that he wore out the carpet in his office, pacing back and forth, worrying about this. He worried that the pain to the economy was so great that Congress would intervene and take away the independence of the Federal Reserve if this experiment of his doesn't start to pay off. Eventually, Volcker's strategy began to work, and inflation did start to come down. By 1983, the annual inflation rate had sunk to its lowest level in more than a decade. Volcker had achieved his mission. And over the next few years, politicians credited him with getting America's economy back on track. 
like during his Senate reconfirmation hearing. Since you have been chairman, I believe you accomplished a basic redirection of monetary policy. It was essential to restoring our economy to a low and faith. After this, the economy entered a long period of growth during the late 80s and 90s. Volcker, by this point, has his legacy assured. Everybody knows and will always remember him as the man who broke the back of inflation. I don't think people understand how politically unpopular that was. It was the most unpopular thing the Fed has ever done, frankly, in its history. And to do that in the face of so much public and political opposition was a statement of extraordinary personal courage. There was a human cost to this, though, right? I mean, the recession did affect hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives. People lost their jobs. Was there something else that could have been done that would have avoided so much pain? Even to this day, there are a lot of critics, especially from the political left, who feel that Volcker went too far. The pain that he inflicted on American workers lasted a generation. There were people who took years before they found another job, and when they did, it was often at much lower pay than the job that they had before that recession. There are people who feel that there are other things the Fed could have done or that other policymakers could have done to bring down inflation. They point to countries like Germany and Japan who managed to keep inflation low without nearly as much pain as the United States had endured. These are questions that we don't really know the answer to because you can't run the experiment a different way. Volcker stepped down as Fed chairman in 1987 and was succeeded by Alan Greenspan. He became the chairman of an investment bank called Wolfenson & Company. And over the years, he headed up several high-profile public committees. Then, in 2008, something drew Volcker back into the world of public service. The financial markets crashed. Several of the largest U.S. banks had been bailed out. It was the biggest financial crisis since the inflation crisis of the 70s. The Obama administration was in full-on damage control, and Volcker had been watching from the sidelines. So after the election, Obama reaches out to Volcker and says, I'd like you to be one of my informal advisors. I'm going to create this economic recovery advisory board, and I'd like you to be in charge of it. And so Volcker gratefully accepts it. And Volcker had strong feelings about who was to blame for the financial crisis. He saw that the cause of the crisis was that banks had gotten away from old-fashioned lending and taking deposits and doing all these fancy trading and derivatives and structured securities and collateralized debt obligations Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. So Volcker's vision is a return to the world that he knew where banks did one thing only, and that was lend money. By this point, Volcker had been out of public service for years. The economy and the nature of banking had changed. And some Obama advisors thought his views were out of date, not what the current crisis needed. But one of Volcker's policies stuck. It was about something called proprietary trading. That's when banks take customer deposits and use that money to make their own trades and keep the profits. Volcker warned that if the bank's trades lost money, it could pose a risk to the entire financial system. This is something about which Volcker is very, very impassioned. Banks should not be allowed to trade their own money. Proprietary trading has got to go. And so this is the one thing that the Obama folks give ground on. Good morning, everybody. I just had a very productive meeting with two members of my Economic Recovery Advisory Board, Paul Volcker. They agree to something that they come to call the Volcker Rule, which will be a ban on proprietary trading by all the banks. It's for these reasons that I'm proposing a simple and common-sense reform, which we're calling the Volcker Rule, after this tall guy behind me. Banks will no longer be allowed to own, 
invest or sponsor hedge funds, private equity funds, or proprietary trading operations for their own profit. The one legacy that Paul Volcker leaves to the economy and the financial system from those years is the Volcker rule. This is also what he says, thou shalt not gamble with the public's money. Yes. He was once asked, what about financial innovation? Isn't that really great? The banks do all these fancy new things. Doesn't that uh, make us all better off? And Volcker responds, the only financial innovation the last few decades that I think had any benefit was the ATM. The Volcker rule is still in effect, but lawmakers have repeatedly tried to weaken or remove it. And many of the biggest banks say it's a burden on their business. But while the banking industry might have changed, the fight over the Fed's independence, which Volcker championed throughout his career, continues to this day. I think people remember Paul Volcker as a person who did really difficult job thanks to the moral clarity that he brought to it. But I think in the years after he was Fed chairman that they increasingly saw him as an anachronism whose view of the world was no longer appropriate after inflation had been defeated. I think the thing that people really revere Paul Volcker for doing was something that was extremely painful, extremely unpopular, something that could have cost him his job, and he did it anyway. He created a reputation for independence at the Fed that everybody who has followed in Volcker's footsteps feels deeply obligated to maintain. And this has taken on exceptional importance right now. President Donald Trump has been highly critical of today's Fed chairman, Jerome Powell. He has called on Powell to cut interest rates, resume bond buying. He has intimated that he could replace Powell, appoint people who will vote against Powell. And every time Powell is asked about this, his response is, we will never, ever allow politics to get in the way of us doing the right thing. He doesn't say it, but Powell is essentially channeling Paul Volcker. I think the independence and the sense of purpose that Volcker showed is rare in politics these days. But one place you still see it is at the Federal Reserve. And that is in no small part because every Fed chairman today wants to maintain the reputation that Paul Volcker built for them. That's all for today, Friday, December 13th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. We are your hosts, Kate Leinbaugh. And Ryan Knudsen. We're produced by Annie Minoff, Ricky Nevetsky, Sarah Platt, Willa Rubin, and Rob Zipko. Our senior producer is Pia Gadkari. Annie Rose Strasser is our supervising producer. Griffin Tanner is our engineer. Our executive producer is Gerard Cole. Our theme music is by Haley Shaw. Additional music this week comes from Peter Leonard and Blue Dot Sessions. If you like the show, follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We come out every weekday afternoon. Thanks for listening. See you Monday.